mediums, he photographs spirits. <laughs> he does all kinds of stuff. He's, he's a mad scientist and he's brilliant. And he is my co-author on this book that we're working on, The Psychology of Religion and Spirituality, which has been a dream for about 15 years. And we finally got the ball rolling on it. And I started out by writing a chapter on meditation and how it relates to psychology and spirituality. And I incorporated the story of Wim Hof, the Iceman, throughout the chapter. Does anybody know who Wim Hof is? Just one person? Only one person has Wim Hof? Two? What do you guys know about Wim Hof? Was he the guy that climbed Mount Everest? He almost made it to the top of Everest in his shorts. Yeah. What do you know about him? Do you know anything? I know the name. Just another name? I don't remember exactly what the details were. Yeah. He, he's, he's the most badass human walking planet Earth, as best as I can tell. Okay? And, he, when he was younger and he wanted to rock climb something that you couldn't put any gear on, but he didn't want to die, do you know how he trained? Instead of doing pull-ups, because you don't just want arm strength, you want finger strength, he would do pull-ups like this, okay? I, I can't even do a regular pull-up, okay? So like, I just can't even wrap my mind around it. And at one point when he was climbing it, he got a, a severe Charlie horse in his leg, severe. And he knew that if it continued, he'd probably fall and die. So what did he do? Cut off his leg. <laughs> I, mean, I don't think he was that mobile or that armed. He thought, the only thing I can do is try to dissolve it and just use his mind to focus on it. And it dissolved. And that was part of the beginning of him realizing the mind over matter. But what he's done is... He studied Tumo as a teenager, which is a form of Tibetan Buddhist meditation that heats up the body. And he developed his own method of Tumo, uh, simplified it a bit, where he's visualizing a flame in his belly and that he's hollow and doing uh, deep breathing, holding his breath. And through doing his method, he's able to keep his body warm while he He's done the world's longest polar swim. When he practiced for it, his eyes froze over and he couldn't see the hole to get out. Somebody had to rescue him. He's done it in like seven, eight minutes. Started tripping balls and dying, right? <laughs> he's, uh, he's done a half marathon in his shorts barefoot in Lapland in Finland where even weak polar animals die, <laughs> right? Like, and and the, he initially got his fame when he had a new, he lives just outside of Amsterdam. He had a news crew come to see him do his little polar swim, right? He cuts the whole ice, he swims. And he's doing it, and they, they, they've got him on there. Meanwhile, some dude, just some regular dudes, walking across the frozen pond in the background and falls through. Nobody does anything. Wim run, runs over there. The guy's going hypothermic. He's going to die. He pulls him out and rescues him. Now, they're really, you know, and then he became known as the Iceman, and there was the footage went viral. Now, he had been in that exact same water and was fine. That man falls in and almost dies. So it, it's, it's all about this uh, technique, and, and it really shows the power of meditation, right? It's not just, oh, here's some middle-aged woman played by Julia Roberts <laughs> traveling the world who learns to meditate, and she's slightly more at peace. You know, this is like superhero stuff. So it's really profound. Anyway, so we wrote this chapter. Um, it went well, we got a book deal out of it, we, we signed with uh, Rutledge, and we're writing the textbook. 
So for today, I'm just going to share with you the only chapter that exists, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, I got a lot of work, just four or five years. Uh, yeah, so the benefits of meditation, emotional, physical, and spiritual. So I really kind of honed it down just to keep within an hour here. So varieties of meditation, what do they all have in common? Is Because there's a lot of meditations, right? They all exert control over attention. The attention could be, you know, on a candle flame, the flame within your belly, your breath, uh, you know, uh, staring at a star for hours. Like, I mean, it could be on just about anything, but if you're exerting control. And how is it that we spend half of our waking life <laughs> like cats on catnip, you know, just mind goes everywhere, right? And so this is you're deciding to c control your attention. And most but not all involve some sort of a breathing technique. Deep breathing, fast breathing, right? Some yoga classes, you're, you know, you're just in one nostril, not the other, just crazy stuff. Um, so it breaks down into three categories of different kinds of meditation, right? Really based off of sort of what your focus is and what your experience is. So focused attention, you just focus on one thing. You are counting your breath. You're staring at a flame. You're saying a mantra again, again and again. It's just the same, same thing, right? And this is what you do in the beginning to learn how to meditate, because you first have to control your mind, right? And usually the brainwave states that are produced are gamma and beta, which is fairly active brain states, alert, awake, active brain states. Open monitoring, once you have a little control over this, is the next step, and this is awareness of everything, right? So if you were open monitoring meditating right now, you would notice the light, the sound the projector makes, the air on your skin, um, what your body feels, what your emotional state is, what your stomach is doing, like just everything. But what you wouldn't be doing is analyze, judging, planning. It's cold, I don't like this, I feel uncomfortable, I am hungry. Like you, you wouldn't, you, you're just in the moment completely and taking it all in. And this is how regular life is, right? You're engaged in life and it's probably a good idea to notice a lot of things in life, right? And so part of this idea is that you don't just want this little period of the day where you're you know, at peace or focused you want this skill to be brought into the rest of your life so that it's like your whole life is like a meditative experience where you're in control and aware. Now once people learn to do open monitoring, they often will still do focused attention because that's its own skill, right? There are times where you want to be focused. If you're uh, you know, a high, doing a high wire act, you don't want to notice everything. You just want to notice that you're going to be balanced, right? And then automatic self-transcending describes the state that you can reach through uh, any meditation method where it just gets to where it's effortless. You're not having to refocus and focus on oh, my mind wandered and bring it back. You're just like in the zone. And that gives you a different brainwave, right, the alpha. Oh, I forgot to mention, with the open monitoring, you get theta brainwaves, which is a little bit slower, deeper, kind of trance um, state. And then this one is alpha, which is active but a little bit less active than with the focused attention. So there's many different positions that you can meditate in. Usually the preferred one is sitting, 
right? And there's a variety of ways to do it just so you're comfortable and your legs aren't falling asleep. They usually want your back to be straight and they have all kinds of ideas about chakras and kundalini and energy running up and down your spine and it's gonna go a lot better if it's straight and connecting this sky to the earth and all this other stuff, right? And the Buddha, right, achieved enlightenment sitting under a tree, not hanging from it in an Eno's hammock or whatever, right? Lying down. It's a great meditation, right? We all do that meditation at the beach. Now, what do you think of the danger of this meditation is? What? Ants? Yeah, ants. <laughs> Falling asleep. Yeah, yeah. So maybe if you do that, you have to put a leg up or something. Uh, it'll wake you up so you don't fall asleep. But, uh, you know, we're talking about meditation, but I haven't given you any of the spiritual background. You'll find it in... It, in all the world's main religions, right, the big religions, they, they all have meditation traditions. There's secular practices. There's a great practice I love from the uh, the, the Huichol that uh, live in central Mexico, right? They're known for taking peyote. <laughs> That's their main claim to fame, and they do beautiful artwork uh, based off of their visions. Uh, but they also do this. Uh, you, get, you don't have to puke when you do this. It's nice, right? So you lay down. And uh, you imagine like the sun coming into your body and like feeling it and absorbing it. And then you feel the energy of the earth coming in from the other side and you feel the two kind of mix in your body. And it's really um, like grounding and peaceful. It's easy, you're just laying on the earth. Uh, so that's a great meditation. Uh, walking meditation, right? Walking meditation is usually done uh, barefoot and you're just, you walk really, really, really slowly, feeling each uh, step, kind of a soft gaze out in front of you. Uh, Zen meditators will do this. It's not the most common one, but it's really good if you're at a meditation retreat where you're just sitting for hours on end. It's hard enough to sit through a class. Your body starts to fall apart. So it's a way of getting up and moving your, your body, keeping your body happy so that you can continue meditating. Oh, there's a great uh, pose. Right. How do you think a yoga pose helps? Like, what do you think that does to your mind? Yeah, right? Like, you you can't plan what you're going to eat for dinner in that pose, right? You're going to fall. So that's part of the beauty of the yoga poses is it forces you to focus your mind so it's not wandering. Uh, and there's all sorts of beliefs about the way the energy moves and the poses too. But traditionally, yoga is a spiritual practice meant to calm and focus your mind. And uh, when it's done in spiritual ways, there's usually different sort of breathing techniques or like the way that you focus your mind. But most yoga classes you go to, it's just like stretch this way, do this pose, right? There may not be any spiritual elements at all. But you can make it a meditation by choosing to focus on your breath or choosing to not let your mind wander, just be um, totally present. Um, so even though I'm saying meditation is found in all the world religions, it's really the Buddhists that have developed it the furthest and who really value it the most. Uh, so, you know, most people who are Buddhists are going to be meditators, right? There's meditation within Christianity, within Muslim tradition, but most people that are in those traditions are not meditating, right? And they don't have really sophisticated meditations. But the Buddhists really, 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 really value it. And so they, you know, have all these different traditions. So 
and you know, like in Christianity, how we have like you know Lutherans and Methodists and that kind of thing. Buddhism's the same way. There's these different traditions, okay, and that's what we're looking at here. So Vajrayana meditations, such as the Tumo that you do to heat up your body, um, activate the sympathetic nervous system, right, the thing that energizes you, without the fight or flight. So you're energized, but you don't have that edge, right? Uh, increases alertness and arousal and improves performance on cognitive tasks, right? And then Theravada and Mahayana meditations, uh, such as those that focus on the breath, create a condition of deep rest and relaxation in which the parasympathetic system is active. So this is being really like chill and relax. So oftentimes when you hear about meditation, you hear, oh, it relaxes you right? Or, oh, it does that. Well, there's so many different kinds of meditation, it's ridiculous. And they do different things. So it's important to recognize, um, you know, like, what's, what's your goal? What do you want? And to choose the right meditation, right? So a common Buddhist goal is to have a peaceful mind. The Dalai Lama, who's the head of, uh, the religious head of uh, Tibetan Buddhism, very wise man, says, Inner peace is the key. If you have inner peace, the external problems do not affect your deep sense of peace and tranquility. Without this inner peace, no matter how comfortable your life is materially, you may still be worried, disturbed, or unhappy because of circumstances. Right? If, you, if you're not settled in your soul, you know, you could have your own Hawaiian island and be miserable because of the mosquitoes. <laughs> you know, or just, right? But if you have peace in your soul, you can be happy anywhere, right? You can be in jail and be happy, right? You can just, you can be anywhere. So the, you know, that's part of the idea. And when you're peaceful, you're a little more likely to be kind to people too, which is something that, you know, they care a lot about. There you go, Un, unfuckwithable. Right? When you're at peace and in touch with yourself and nothing anyone says or does bothers you and no negativity or drama can touch you, right? So this kind of sounds like, the Buddhist goal, right? Oh, if I just meditate enough, nothing will bother me. Just everything will just bounce off of me. Is that possible? No. Why isn't it possible? Don't you just need to meditate more? Do you think the Dalai Lama is totally peaceful? Not all the time. He laughs a lot. He makes does. fart jokes. <laughs> when he talks about China. Oh, oh, does he get riled up about China? China. They hate him. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Does he hate them? No. No, he sees them as a spiritual teacher. Yeah. Yeah, so the Dalai Lama, the dude's been meditating practically since the day he was born. Okay, like he's, dead, he's like has a PhD in meditation. And he says, even he gets mad. He's a human. He gets mad. Things happen. But the difference is he doesn't stay mad. Right? Think about the last time you were mad. How long did you stay mad? I'm still mad. I'm still mad. <laughs> yeah. Some people hold on to stuff from 20 years ago, right? Like, and how do you stay mad? You think about it. You obsess about it. You talk about it. You blame the person. You yell at the person. You, uh, you, know, you just... You hang on to it, you hang on to it, you hang on to it. Yeah, I got this thing, it's awesome, right? Or what the Dalai Lama does is he goes, I'm angry. Do I want to be angry? Is angry good for relationships? Is angry good for my mind? No, it's 
it's not. I don't want it. I'm going to let it go. I'm going to send the person compassion, and I'm going to move on with it, you know, and thank them for reminding me to be calm and, and polite, right? So it, what it is is it gives you more control over your emotions than what you've had before, but not complete control because you're still a human, <laughs> right? Probably not going to float on a bubble over Machu Picchu. <laughs> Uh, so meditators are better at perceiving something and moving on rather than being preoccupied. So there's more choice. You are in control of your mind, and when you're in control of your mind, you're in control of your emotions, right? You choose which emotion you want and how to feed it, right? So you have less discursive thought um, and less you know, negative emotion. I'm worried. I'm getting too relaxed. So the benefits of heightened attention, this is all from research, right? You make fewer mistakes, control your thoughts and emotions better, you're, there's less distraction from negative emotions because you're reducing them, better health behaviors, right, because you have to keep awareness to constantly watch yourself to be healthy. Reduce drug abuse, you have more kind of peace in yourself to where you don't need to find it somewhere else, um, and it can help with GRE scores too. And a few more things here for research. So meditation reduces anxiety, interpersonal sensitivity, and paranoia, all of which contribute to stress, right? The amygdala, which is largely responsible for fear and anger, becomes less active in response to unpleasant stimuli the more that people meditate. So not only are you saying, that's anger, and I don't want to hang on to it, you're not getting as angry to begin with, right? The Dalai Lama, suggests, and there isn't really research to support it, but it makes a lot of sense, that what you're doing is like when you're doing meditations to build compassion and love, compassion and love, compassion and love, and then anger comes along and you let it go, it's a skill. So you're making these compassion pathways stronger and the anger pathways weaker. So you, it's easier to just go with the um, compassion, right? And then uh, meditation increases activity in brain areas associated with happiness as well as the subjective experience of happiness, right? They, there was one um, study that Richard Davidson did where he took people that worked in factories, had these miserable jobs, or sort of your average miserable humans, right? So one of the ways of me uh, measuring happiness is which half of the brain is more active? Is it the left half or is it the right half, right? So in little kids and in monks and in really happy people, the left half of their brain is more active. In regular adults who have to adult and go to work and pay mortgages and go to the dentist and all that shit, the right brain is more active, right? It's like, oh, I'm adulting too hard. Work's a four letter word, ah, right? So they take these people and they have shitty factory jobs, right? And they teach them to meditate, and they tell them, we want you to do it every day. But, you know, they're busy, they're working. They don't do it every day. They do it three, four times a week, 20 minutes a day for eight weeks. They shift from being predominantly active in their right brain to predominantly active in their left brain. Yeah. So, I mean, it doesn't take much to shift people over to uh, happiness. Right? So really powerful stuff here. And this is important. What you practice grows stronger, right? We know this with our bodies, right? If I want to build my biceps, I'm not going to do squats, right? I'm going to, you know, lift or, you know, do pull-ups or something like that, right? I'm not going to be like, well, 
why did my biceps get bigger when I was doing squats? And it's the same thing with your brain, okay? Your brain is not a muscle, but it acts like one. It, you know, if you play the violin and you practice and practice and practice and practice, boom, you're great, right? Like I remember one time going to see my friend uh, play the mandolin at some weird hippie concert in the middle of the desert, and he'd taken a shit ton of mushrooms and he could play the mandolin. And I'm like, what are you made of? Like, <laughs> how does that work? Or whatever, right? Uh, he must have done it a lot of mushrooms before, so been so practiced with his instrument that it didn't um, matter, right? Um, about state-dependent learning. State-dependent learning, right? Mm -hmm. And most of the songs came from his dreams. I don't know. He's a special guy, um, right? So <laughs> he lives in a van now with his cat. <laughs> he's a, he's like full-on hippie. I'm telling you. Um, <laughs> so when it comes to meditation, there's all these different focuses, and whatever you, the evidence shows. What you want to get through meditation is what you get out of it. So if I decide I'm too angry of a person, I want to be more loving, and I do all these loving, kindness, compassion meditations, I become that. If I want to be more calm, I become that. If I want to become more alert, I become that. And it's like you're just reinforcing these neural pathways, and it gets easier and easier and easier, right? Rather than just letting your brain go all over the place. Um, and there you go, Care Bears. So loving-kindness meditation, uh, not one of the more common ones you hear about in our art culture, but very essential within Buddhism and uh, the spiritual traditions in general. This is a meditation where you're like the little care bear sending out your little rainbow heart love to somebody. You're just mm, you're sending love to people, right? And you make a, a practice of it, and you do it to even the shitty people that drive you crazy, right? So you're really pushing yourself to the boundaries of um, loving people. And it, when people do this, it increases empathy, right? You care more about people, feel what they feel. Self-acceptance, right? You're nice and you love yourself more. You're like, oh, I screwed up, I'm a human, whatever. Um, Self-empathy, right? Improves romantic relationships, right? If you're sending love to your partner, you're not sending hate to them, you're not sending anger, it's gonna go better. Um, and it reduces rumination and pain, right? You're not kind of beating yourself up over stuff. Dalai Lama again, be kind whenever possible, it is always possible, right? Really, really, really value kindness, and this is, um, you know, and in all the world religions, right? Love, kindness, forgiveness. This is, here's a technique to make it easier to do that, you know, to take the spiritual value and enact it in your life. Um, focused attention meditation increases focus on a particular thing, right? You focus on your breath a bunch, uh, you're going to be better focusing on, on other stuff, right? So it increases vigor, decreases the need for sleep, and decreases emotional reactivity, right? This need for sleep is sort of an interesting one that I've read a lot about. Um, when people first start meditating, sometimes they need a little bit more sleep, right? Like if you just started going to CrossFit this week, you'd probably need more sleep. You're not used to it. It hurts. It's hard, right? Same thing with meditation. When you first start doing it, it can be really difficult. It can be like, it's like your, the Buddhists say it's like your brain's a monkey. I like to add a slip monkey on crack, <laughs> right? Like it's, it's, it's a bad neighborhood in your brain. Like you don't want to go there. It's like crazy. And so when you're trying to take control of it and you're not used to taking control of it, it's hard. It's really hard. But over time, it gets easier. And as it gets easier, um, 
people need less sleep. So the people that are expert meditators, 10 plus years meditating every day, will sleep an hour or two less every night than they used to, right? Which is great, because it's like it pays for itself, right? Um, and then enhances habituation. Habituation is there's like an unpleasant stimuli, like a car alarm going off, and you, you ignore it, right? It makes it easier to ignore things that you want to ignore in your environment. And then open monitor. Remember, we're paying attention to everything outside and inside. Lo and behold, it increases general awareness. It makes you more attentive to what's in your environment. You're more like that uh, monk, the detective on that show, right? There's OCD. People that are OCD tend to notice everything instead of just one thing. Makes you a little bit like that, right? But not in a neurotic way, right? Uh, so it's been shown to increase awareness of a person's sense of identity, heightened sensitivity to bodily sensations you notice more easily if you're hungry, tired, um, the environment, and decreases emotional reactivity. And this one does the opposite. It prevents habituation. So you hear the car alarm, and you don't block it out because you've trained yourself to constantly pay attention to everything, and you continue to do it. But it doesn't bother you um, very much. And then visualization meditations, not super common in our culture, but the Tibetan Buddhists, it's big for them. They do something called deity meditation. Uh, like once they've learned uh, the foundations of Tumo, deity is part of the uh, path. And they'll imagine, uh, they choose whichever deity they want to take on the qualities of. And imagine that they're that deity, and oh, well that one's getting laid, that's not bad, so you could be that deity. Is it? It's hard to tell. I think there's a person on him. Maybe not. No, I think he's just by himself. But anyway, he's got a lot of cool stuff going on. So you imagine that you're this, uh, I teach Tantra too much, maybe. <laughs> They're all intertwined in those. Uh, but anyway, so you imagine that you're this deity, that you see all this stuff, that you feel different things, and you, uh, you know, go into this deep state and hold it for hours. That's the practice. And the idea is that you'll take on those qualities yourself and you can have a more powerful spiritual practice if you're some deity rather than just, you know, Joe Schmo. And so the monks that do this regularly uh, can hold visualizations for hours, hours. But the ones who don't, it's just not part of their practice, not everybody uh, does that path, it's a difficult uh, path, um, they can only hold it for about 20 minutes, right? You and I try to hold a visualization, how long do you think we could hold it? like that complicated. We wouldn't even want to learn it, <laughs> right? It, we, we don't hold stuff very long at all because we don't value visualization in our culture, right? Any of you ever try to visualize anything? Maybe if you're an athlete, do you visualize yourself doing something? I don't do yeah. this at all, but I was going to say that a lot of times people use things like memory palaces and stuff too, oh. and I'm wondering if that would help with learning. I mean, yeah. I can't do it, to be totally honest, but... I, yeah. Well, I'm sorry. I can't do it yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the... Memory palaces. Yeah, yeah. People who do that, right, where you visualize memories, like, in a building and you yeah. walk through the buildings. Yeah. Yeah, that would be a good example. Mantra meditation, right, is where you keep repeating the same phrase, right? Like, so hum, I am that I am, right? A lot of times it's going to be these Sanskrit phrases that are thought to have power and whatever the meaning of the word is, it engenders that in your life, right? Like, 
Uh, Oprah Winfrey and Deepak Chopra regularly do these free 21-day meditations where there's like a little lesson and then they'll have you say something in Sanskrit over and over again uh, to help you engender like whatever that thing is, you know, self-acceptance, compassion, or, or whatever. Um, uh, so it increases focus and reduces negativity. Another version of this that you see in spiritual traditions is saying the name of God over and over again. Right? And you can do it uh, silently throughout the day as a way of uh, keeping a focus. And then some of the spiritual parts. So meditation enhances spirituality. So even if you just do a secular meditation where you're just focused on your breath, you're just taking in stuff outside, it increases spirituality, which is really interesting. But if you are spiritual or religious and you do a meditation within your tradition, it enhances spirituality even further. And for the people who are religious and spiritual, they tend to value things deemed spiritual or sacred more than other things, right? So like somebody um, who's uh, married and they see marriage as like God's covenant, uh, are going to be nicer to their spouse, less likely to divorce them, more likely to work through things. And somebody that doesn't see it that way, oh, it's just a societal convention to raise children, you're a little more likely to say, screw you, and let's get divorced. So the same thing with meditation. If you see it as, oh, it's just something to keep my blood pressure down, versus, oh, it helps me connect to God. Like, who's going to value that more, right? The person feels like it's connecting them to God. So uh, they, they tend to value it more, they tend to do it more, they tend to get more out of it. There is a long-standing tradition in Christianity that goes back to the 3rd century AD of uh, meditation. There is this group of people called the Desert Fathers and Mothers. It was uh, monks, nuns, and ascetics who said, we're going to go live out in the desert, we're going to do our own thing, we don't like the way Christianity is going in the big city, we're going to make our own little place, and we're going to do our own practices and do these. Uh, they would say uh, Kyrie Eleison was one of their meditations, right? Because they really like music. Remember that song? Yeah. No. But they, it's a, uh, what is it? Lord, Lord have mercy on me, I think is what it is. Kyrie, Kyrie Eleison. And so they would say that as their mantra again and again and again and again. Um, uh, you know, that was the, the gist of it. They had some other practices, some breathing practices. And this fellow, uh, John. Maine a few years ago decided to revive the tradition and try to make it more mainstream Christianity. Um, anyway, so they've done some research on Christian meditation. So Christian meditation is usually going to be something like Kyrie eleison or saying, you know, Jesus Christ have mercy on me, um, you know, some sort of mantra like that, or there's another form developed by St. Ignatius of Loyola where you read a passage of the Bible, like a story about something happening, and then you imagine yourself as one of the characters in it, and really try to feel and experience it, and you get a deeper feeling and understanding of the scripture. So those are some of the main meditations. And so when they've done research on it, they, these are the uh, some of the big findings. So it decreases stress, increases a collaborative relationship with God, where you feel like you can have a dialogue with God, reduces habitual responding to life events, Meaning, you choose how you're going to respond. You're not just reactive. You're not just pissed off. Right? Lowers anxiety, anger, and muscle tension. You're more relaxed. Right? Reduces negative religious coping, like thinking that God is punishing you or that your sins are unforgivable or that, like that. Uh, reduces 
um, right, the view of God is controlling and reduces materialistic aspirations. You don't value fame, fortune, yeah, the American dream that much anymore. I, I mean, it increases non-materialistic aspirations, right? Community service, loving relationships, you know, those sorts of things, you know, which actually bring you happiness, right? So this isn't just, oh, this is just a spiritual thing. That's the stuff that tends to bring people happiness in life, not fame and fortune. And then mindfulness. So this is one of those almost like overly used buzzwords, right? Oh, let's be mindful. Let's have a mindful classroom. Oh, I'm going to be a mindful parent, right? There's, there's like multiple books on being a mindful parent, right? I think I should read one while my son plays in the street, right? <laughs> Just for the irony on it. So where does, where does this come from? So it, it comes from the Buddhist idea that you need to be in the moment. And uh, John Kabat-Zinn is a famous physician who developed mindfulness-based stress reduction where he took Buddhist meditation, watered it down so it wasn't Buddhist. It was just something anybody could do regardless of their religious affiliation for the physical benefits, for healing, for helping patients that weren't responding to other things. Uh, so he says mindfulness, and he's got the most popular definition going, is paying attention on purpose in the present moment and non-judgmentally to the unfolding of experience moment by moment. Right? When you're washing the dishes, you're just washing the dishes. You're not thinking, you're not remembering. Whatever you're doing, you're just doing it. And you're not uh, letting your mind go crazy with it. right? And the idea is uh, the more that you're in the moment, the happier you're gonna be, right? Eckhart Tolle, the power of now. Any, like, you guys ever watch Oprah interviewing people on her little, like, spiritual thing she's got going? Like, every single person on that thing is like, oh, you gotta be in the moment, right? Oh my gosh, does anybody have a different message? But whatever, it's like, it's the thing, right? It's almost overdone. Buddhists, their definition of mindfulness is not just being in the moment, but try to be a good person in the moment. It's not, you know, you can be in the moment and be a total jerk. Uh, who cares about that? That's useless. So you have to have ethical behavior. Be in the moment so you can be um, nice to people, right? Like, I'm totally fascinated by Tibetan Buddhism. I took a class years ago in it, read all these stories of crazy shit happening, people dreaming about... Uh, being given a scroll and they wake up and there's a scroll and you know just weird stuff like are you freaking kidding me and uh you know and they're able to heat up their bodies by 15 degrees using uh tumo meditation right and that is documented by scientists so i just you know i'm fascinated by them and many years ago i was at a spiritual gathering where i had a chance to meet a tibetan buddhist monk and i was beside myself i was like one of those uh, wildlife photographers looking for this, you know, hidden snow leopard in the Himalayas. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, I've got one. I'm gonna, I'm gonna watch him, <laughs> see what he does. See if, see maybe I'll catch him levitating when he thinks nobody's looking. You know, <laughs> like, like I'm, I'm gonna watch this guy. And, and what do you think I saw? What do, you, what do you think you'd see if you watched a monk for a couple days? Just, just like, yeah, smiles. He was, he was a very smiley little monk. Yeah. yeah. I don't know, he's about my height, I think. What do you think he was doing? Levitating. 
Maybe under the robe. I didn't see his feet the whole time. I don't think he did. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So what, I'll tell you what I want, what I saw. What I saw is every single time I looked at him, and this was like people from all different spiritual traditions. There's all kinds of stuff going on. It's like there was one point where we were sitting out by a fire, and he was just constantly just like scanning everybody and everything. And like he'd see somebody that looked like this and go like, oh, that person looks cold, and he'd go bring them like a jacket. And he'd look, oh, the wood's burning down on the fire, and he'd go put wood on it. And for this is all he did. It's like I would just be, you know, half asleep, staring at the fire, like whatever. He was just like, how can I help people? How can I help people? What can I do? What can I do? What can I do? Like this is where his mind was. And because he was looking, he constantly found opportunities. I didn't even notice that somebody was cold. I didn't notice the fire was going out. And so this is part of mindfulness. You have to notice these things that there's a need, or you're never gonna um, you're never gonna fill that need. So um, yeah, so there's that, right? And then spiritual development is obviously super important for them. Um, and the the reason mindfulness has gotten so much attention in our society is because we are so mindless, right? We are texting in the car and causing wrecks. We are forgetting things. We are uh, losing our tempers. We are doing three things at once. We have five screens going, right? And what's the, what does that lead to? Anxiety, a lot of mistakes. You try to talk to somebody on the phone, they're watching TV. You're like, hello, <laughs> right? It's, it's, it's damaging to relationships. Um, it's just, it's not a good state. And, and it's like you're not, if you think about it, you spend one-third of your life asleep, and most people are not used to dreaming. They don't have awareness. You're just kind of out of it. And then the other two-thirds of your life, you're awake, and you spend about half your time in the moment. You're 100% in the moment. And you spend about half your time mind-wandering. So that means one-third of your life you're present for. <laughs> right? One-third. So maybe if you were more present when you were awake, and the Tibetan Buddhist, if you're more present when you're asleep, too, and lucid dreaming, you get more life out of your life, right? You're, you show up for it. You're not missing things that are right in front of you. Um, Mindfulness-based cognitive therapy has uh, grown out of our love of Buddhism. And this is, right, cognitive therapy is where, like, you're depressed and you're anxious, usually, and you tell somebody, I have these thoughts that make me depressed and anxious, and they say, ah, maybe those aren't the best thoughts, maybe you should have these thoughts. And you learn, you know, ways of thinking happier and more positive. So this takes that idea, but adds to it being mindful and learning to meditate, right? So that... Uh, it's a lot easier to just meditate than to have to analyze every thought and what it's gonna do for you and replace it with a better thought. So it's a little more simple to just learn um, thoughts are just thoughts and don't worry about them instead of uh, create a new thought. So it's the gold standard for treating depression. It is the best treatment by far. There's no side effects, right? Uh, so they teach you to meditate. Uh, they do three-minute breathing exercises, right? So when you're not in therapy and you're going through life and somebody cuts you off in traffic, somebody says offensive things to you, 
you show up to class and there's a test you weren't prepared for, like all these upsetting things happen to you, you stop and for three minutes you take deep breaths and you just breathe. And it's like a reset button, right? So pretty much any emotion that comes up in life uh, only lasts a few minutes. It's only going to last longer because you keep thinking about it and talking about it and, and obsessing over it. But if you put your attention somewhere else and just cut it, it will go away and it won't keep going. Right? And then label feelings. Oh, I made it too quiet. identifying it as being outside of you and not the fabric of your very being and you can let it go easier. So it takes a lot of the power out of them when you label them. So that's part of it, right? You just label your feelings that come up and just let it go. That's um, sadness. I don't need sadness. I'm going to let it go. Oh, that's anger. Huh. Well, maybe I'll pay attention to it for a minute because it tells me I need to deal with this situation. But then I'm just going to let it go. Right, so clients are also encouraged to do activities that they um, enjoy and are good at, right? Because that always makes you feel better. <laughs> so uh, the NBCT treats depression more effectively than usual care, which is medication and or cognitive behavioral therapy, in both the short term and the long term, and reduces the relapse rate of depression twice as effectively as usual care. So it's really, really powerful. You are being taught a skill that you can just take with you. Have they looked at that with um, exercise? Because I know exercise, of course. Well, it, it's hard to get the motivation to exercise when you're depressed, but I know exercise really does help with I, depression. I haven't seen where they've combined it or separated it to compare it. Yeah. I don't know. What about if you meditate on your own and you're not like a Buddhist or you don't have a therapist teaching you? Do you think you can still benefit? Yeah. Do you think you'll benefit as much? Probably not. Probably not as much, right? Because it's a little bit easier if you have some experts and some social support. Uh, but they found that even people using meditation apps, you know, just get a little app, you do your 20 minutes a day, significant differences, right? You, I mean, it's just a human skill. You know, you can teach, you can teach it to yourself, you can learn it on the internet. Uh, and there's a lot of benefit, right? So all of these have been shown to effectively treat depression and anxiety, even if you're just doing it on your own. Meditation, yoga, uh, breathing exercises, right? And, and how do they all do it? Well, it decreases rumination and cortisol levels. So it's your thoughts. You're not thinking as much, hanging on to the negative thoughts. And physically, when you're stressed, you release cortisol. And it, that kind of adds to your stress, right? Um, but here you're gonna, you know, produce more, I guess, happy hormones, neurotransmitters. A meta-analysis where you look at a bunch of different research studies. A mindfulness meditation is found to be just as effective as drugs for treating anxiety and depression, right? And there's no side effects, which is awesome, right? There's a lot of side effects with those medicines. Yeah. 
All right, now try try this. We'll just see what it does for you. So breathe slowly, deeply, and regularly through your nose. Relax your rib cage and just just do it for a minute to see how it feels. chest or cage, and uh, if you can bear it, sigh occasionally in public with other humans. vitamin C is a cure all for everything. Like, is it really? Or is it just like, you know, or it's like Dr. Oz saying green tea is going to make you lose 20 pounds. Is it really? <laughs> right, so they just, they really felt skeptical. Like, let's actually test this, you know, because that just doesn't sound right. So they had over 2,000 people, adults, that had phones, and what they would do is they would periodically throughout the day for a period of, I think it was about two months, uh, ding them, and every time it dinged, they'd pick up their phone and they would say what they're doing, where their mind was, wandering to something negative, wandering to something happy, or I'm just in the moment. And then on a scale of 1 to 10, how happy are you right now? So this would be going on throughout the day. 
And it, what they found is the more in the moment absorbed you were, the happier you were. And the more mind-wandering, even if it was happy mind-wandering, the less happy you were. So when do you think people were the most in the moment, just naturally? It wasn't very often, but what were they doing? When are people just 100% in the moment? about what were you thinking the last time you had an orgasm anything other than yeah right when they're having sex that's when people are a hundred percent in the moment that's when they're the happiest right when are people the least happy and the least in the moment. Work. The four letter word. Yep. So here you can see with the bubbles, the, the, this is showing you they're very unhappy and they're spending a lot of time there. And there's the tiny little, gosh, I'm so tired from work, I hardly have any time to do it even though I love it, making love bubble. <laughs> right? It's this tragic state of the United States right there, okay? Now, and then this is showing you not mind wandering is the most happy and any, you know, unpleasant is obviously the worst. Um, so so what, what can we do? Can we stop working and just have uh, sex all the time? If you figure that one out, let me know. So why do I, <laughs> I will buy your book. I'll sign up for your online course. <laughs> I don't know what money I'll pay with it when I've done the job anymore. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so it turns out what we can do, lo and behold, I'm sure you're never going to guess this one, we can meditate, right? Turns out people who are you know, miserable at work, you teach them to meditate, they're, they're more in the moment at work, and they're happier at work. What about all these people having sex? You teach them to meditate, guess what? They enjoy sex more, too. It makes, makes everything better. So, yay. You think I'm selling it? Five bucks. I'll give you some meditation. <laughs> right? So Richard Davidson, meditation expert, says it's best to think of happiness as a skill. If we practice it, we can get better at it. Right? And then how much should people meditate? The Buddhists, mostly, they're going to say an hour a day and that you should do longer retreats. Longer retreats, you go deeper. Westerners, 20 minutes. Do we say this because we think that's optimal? No. We say that because we know nobody will do an hour, right? So you say 20 minutes, it's going to be better than nothing. It's going to make a big difference. So you have people do 20 minutes. Another school of thought is little bits throughout the day, right? After people meditate, there's a pronounced uh, effect in attention and happiness for a period of time afterwards. So if you do it many times throughout the day, uh, maybe overall you're going to feel better throughout the day. And then go deep or go home, right? If your meditation is mostly mind-wandering with just a touch of actual focus, you're not going to have much benefit, right? It's better to do five minutes of 100% focus than an hour of 10% focus. You're going to get a lot more out of it if you're doing it. And most research doesn't even look at that, but 
but when they do, it really does make a big uh, difference. There are some dangers in meditation, which you never hear about. Uh, bad teachers can take advantage of students and harm them. Um, some people will have psychotic breaks during meditation, especially if it's long retreats where they're not sleeping and eating and they're just meditating like crazy. And if they have pre-existing mental disorders, it can come to the surface. Um, heightened self-awareness can be humbling, right? I'm not as great as I thought I was. Increased awareness of just how shitty your life is, can, right? Like all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, I can see my whole life and it's horrible. You feel bad. Um, and then dissociation where you feel sort of removed from your um, life, less emotional, that can be disturbing to people. Uh, yoga, sometimes people get injured through crazy stuff. Um, but most meditators say that the good outweighs the bad and that they can learn from the bad and the difficult. And the people that have the psychotic breaks in particular benefit from getting more sleep, eating, uh, changing to a different meditation or stopping meditation altogether. Um, and counseling is also really helpful. And then these are resources. So uh, the best apps that are out there that is, you know, a lot of the apps will just ding when they want to tell you to meditate. But these give you lessons, little videos, timers, reminders, um, right, breathing and body scan meditations. None of them do compassion meditation. Uh, this has some compassion meditation on it, Richard Davidson. Uh, so just a couple of your different ones. Um, you guys have any questions? All right, well, let me just give you my real quick commercial. <laughs> so I remember, uh, I'm, in the spring, I'm teaching psychology of religion and spirituality here, Psychology uh, 221, and it's it covers a, like it's going to you know cover this in depth as well as a variety of religious and spiritual traditions, how they affect physical health, mental health, relationships, uh, mystical experiences, mediums, dreaming, some of the different ways that people produce spiritual experiences through. Um, rituals, prayers, uh, ayahuasca, ketamine, um, some of the kind of the dark sides of this stuff too. And that transfers as an elective to any of the four-year schools in South Carolina. Um, and I teach the sex class too, which is super fun, even sexuality. <laughs> so there's that. It's all good. Um, well, thank you guys. <laughs>